0: And now I will introduce today's special guest. I wish that every girl or young woman who ever felt discouraged by the obstacles she faced, whoever felt that she couldn't achieve something because the odds were stacked against her, could spend 10 minutes with the woman who is our guest today. Kim Campbell has had so many firsts after her name that if Guinness published an edition of Canadian records, it would need an entire Kim Campbell category. For starters, she was the first ever elected, first girl ever elected as student body president at Prince of Wales Secondary School in Vancouver. (laughs) She went on to study political science at the University of British Columbia, where she was the first female freshman president ever elected. She first ran for the Social Credit Party in 1983, unfortunately unsuccessfully. But, as is so often the case in both life and politics, that defeat carried with it the seeds of a different win. She went to work in the office of Premier Bill Bennett in the B.C. Legislature, where she established herself as a political force. And she ran again in 1986. This time she won her seat and became the M.L.A. for the riding of Vancouver Point Grey. Like many natural leaders, both male and female, it was her principles and having the courage to speak out for what she believed in that propelled Kim Campbell to the forefront of political and public life. It was 1988 the Supreme Court of Canada had made a landmark decision that forever changed the lives and fates of women in this country. It struck down the law that prohibited abortions as being unconstitutional. Then, BC Premier Bill Vanderzam refused to abide by that decision, saying that his province would not fund abortions regardless of what the Supreme Court said. Kim Campbell, then a social credit backbencher, was once again a first. The first MLA to challenge the leader of her party, speaking about, out about her obligation to represent her constituents and the will of the people who elected her and to follow her own conscience rather than bend to the will of her government. Later that year, she moved to federal politics with Brian Mulroney's Progressive Conservatives and she kept adding to the list of firsts with some of the most significant accomplishments by a woman in Canadian politics ever. In 1990, she became the first woman Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada in 1993, she became the first female Minister, uh, minister of National Defense. And when Brian Mulroney decided to step down, she defeated Jean Chretien to become the first female leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. And on June 25, 1993, she became the first, and so far the only, woman Prime Minister of Canada. She retired from politics after losing the election in 1993, but her many accomplishments her courage and tenacity and sense of justice have changed the way we see women's role in politics and government forever so who better to inspire us today as we honor and celebrate and encourage women as full contributors and participants in public life please join me in extending a warm welcome to a Canadian pioneer and role model for women everywhere the right honorable kim campbell
1: years ago when I was in graduate school, I was the student of a very famous professor, a man named Leonard Shapiro, who was a legend in the field of Soviet studies. And we used to have a seminar Tuesday evening when visiting scholars from around the world would come and make presentations. And Leonard would give them the most effusive and complimentary introductions, and they would all kind of squirm because they were all thinking of how much less accomplished they were than the person who was introducing them. And I have the same feeling today, being praised in the company of an extraordinary group of women. If I tried to list all of you whom I know and whose accomplishments I know, it would take the whole speech. And there are many more uh, whose bios I don't know, but who I know are also uh, among the strengths of the women's movement here in Toronto. And that doesn't say anything for the men, who are great supporters and uh, uh, wonderful uh, inspirations for the work that we do. So let me say that I am honored to be here, honored to be the recipient of the EVE Award. Um, and uh, also I want to just say before I begin my remarks that I, I want to express an appreciation for the sponsors because they make it possible to have these gatherings. And talking to a very clever young woman who happens to be a stepdaughter of mine, about, who knows something about this field, I discovered that many corporations are very diffident about publicizing their corporate social relations and often the more they care about a cause the less public they are about it and i think that Merck's work in WIMS leadership is really wonderful and so if you look at the sponsors take a moment to go on their website sometime over the next few days and i think you'll probably be surprised at the kind of work that they are doing and i hope that you will uh... return that care that many of these sponsors have for the causes that you believe in with your own uh, interest and loyalty to them because I think it is very very important they don't always do it as a matter of branding they do it because they know they have a responsibility to give back to society and they often because they don't want to be seen to be self-serving hide their lights under a bushel so let's take the bushel off and and, and thank them and also I want to say a special thank to the, thanks to the Canadian Club um, this is not the first time I've spoken here I remember once speaking at the Canadian Club I think when Isabel Bassett was president, and it was during the 1993 election, and I'd been doing a, a, an all-morning interview on CTV, uh, on I think this was 10 a.m. or something, and I had a bad cough, And uh, I asked my assistant to run and get my cough medicine, and I guzzled too much of it, and it was quite potent. And I remember standing in front of the audience at the Canadian Club, sort of with my head spinning, but they gave me a standing ovation, which may have been to do with their wonderment that uh, these words were coming out, or that perhaps I wasn't quite as dizzy as I thought. But anyway, over the years, I've enjoyed being here. It's a great organization, a wonderful platform, and thank you today for sharing it with Equal Voice, an equally wonderful organization. Um, equal Voice is looking for a breakthrough. Equal Voice wants to change the way Canadians are governed. And when I became Prime Minister of Canada, uh, many people felt that this was a breakthrough. And I wish it had been. I wish I had been the thin edge of a wedge which had grown into, you know, female prime ministers hanging from the rafters. But alas, that is not the case. And when I became prime minister, a lot of Canadians were very proud that Canada had beat the United States, that we had got a woman head of government before the Americans had done so. But I think what's very interesting, the last American election uh, involved two very significant breakthroughs. Uh, Hillary Clinton certainly made a breakthrough on behalf of women, and oddly enough, I think the nomination was hers to to lose, I think, in underestimating the importance of the Iowa caucuses. uh, She allowed a momentum to get away from her, but she performed extraordinarily well, and I think as a person and as a candidate, grew from strength to strength. And I shouldn't think she put to bed once and for all the notion that a woman is not tough enough, uh, strong enough, mentally tough enough to handle the pressures of, uh, of being a presidential candidate, certainly, and being President of the United States. And uh, I wish her very well in her new and responsible role as Secretary of State. But in the issue of race, Barack Obama made a breakthrough that many of us feared we would never see in our lifetime, and it was unbelievably exciting. I was in France uh, at the time of of the inauguration, and I was glued to the TV for three days solid and shared with people around the world this incredible sense of possibility and exuberance, and and many countries outside of the United States asking themselves whether they would be able to make uh, such a a selection, to to reach out of the, 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 the mainstream of political candidacies to support somebody. But recently, I've been reading Barack Obama's first book, Dreams from My Father. And there, it's a very interesting discussion of his childhood. And he talks about the great good fortune he had in being raised as a very young boy to be totally oblivious to his color. And if anything, to think that being black was a great thing. His mother and her family and all the people around them were very, very supportive. And when they living in Hawaii, there was a much more of a colorblind uh, society. His mother remarried, and uh, the family moved to Indonesia, to Jakarta. And again, he lived in a society, his Indonesian stepfather was warm and wonderful to him, and he lived in a wonderful kind of polyglot mixed society where they had pet crocodiles in the backyard. I don't know, I'm not surprised he moved out if the crocodiles grow big. I I don't care what color you are, I think you're lunch. But, um, But his mother had a job at the American Embassy. And one day, he was visiting her at the embassy, and there he was in the reading room or something, and he was looking through some life magazines. And there was a picture of a black man with his skin all peeling and distorted. And the story was that he had bought some kind of product which promised to make his skin white. And Obama talks about the incredible emotional impact of reading that story and reading about somebody who would want to make his black skin white. And what did this mean? Because he had never been exposed to any idea that his color was not as wonderful as anybody else's color. And he talks about how he kind of, he didn't talk to his mother about this article and he kind of put it aside. But from then on, he began to notice that, well, he went back to the United States to school, that he began to notice that Bill Cosby never got the girl in I Spy. And that in his culture, Black people weren't on the same footing as white people. And I was very struck by that because I think anyone who is a member of a group that is excluded or underrepresented for some purpose deals sometimes with the pain of recognition that no matter what you do, you're not wanted. And I thought of my own childhood, much like Obama's. I was raised to believe that girls could do anything. And my mother told my sister me stories about wonderful women who had accomplished great things. And we were told about Charlotte Whitten, who who said, you know, a woman has to be twice as good as a man to be thought half as good, but fortunately that's easy. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, for me, and when I was at school, I was smart, and so girls get praised at school for being smart. I was, as you heard, the first girl to be elected student council president at my high school. But I think it was when I was at university that I began to see that there was a difference in status. Uh, Sometimes people ask me about my political career and how it was different from that of boys. I didn't get involved in campus political party clubs because they weren't very congenial to girls. You were welcome to belong to the young Tories or the young Liberals or I don't know if there were any young NDPs, they all seemed old at the start. Just kidding, just kidding. Um, but, you were, but you were welcome if you, didn't, if you wanted to make the coffee and if you wanted to go and work in election campaigns. But the people who got to be executive assistants in Ottawa, and I knew a lot of young men who great, smart guys that went off to be EAs in Ottawa, that was boys, not girls. Young men, not young women. And so if you wanted a political career, you had to be something different. I remember as I was getting close to graduation and you know, applying for graduate school, and how all of my, my women friends would talk about the kinds of questions that they would get if they were uh, interviewing for high-prestige fellowships. You know, well, what are you going to do with it? Are you just going to get married? Are you not going to, to, to go anywhere? Uh, and, of course, Rhodes Scholarships simply were not available for women. So every time somebody of my generation parades out a Rhodes Scholarship uh, as, a, as a, a source of pride, it aggravates me because the women of that person's generation were not eligible. It was about seven years, I think, after I graduated from university, before women became eligible for Rhodes Scholarships. Uh, You think of things like Skull and Bones, the the Secret Society, yeah. I mean, women were not allowed into those organizations. You began to see that, and you began to understand that doors that could open up networks and opportunities for advancement professionally or politically, if you wanted to go into it, simply were closed to you. And so I guess I had my Obama moment or Obama moments in terms of my own membership of a group for which the doors were not always open uh, as a young woman in university. And it's funny because I sometimes think that I made the decision to go to graduate school not because I particularly wanted to go to graduate school but because I wanted to prove that I could. And again, that can sometimes distort your ambitions if you feel you have to make a statement. You may often try to do something uh, which is not what you would have done if every option had been open to you and you didn't feel that your choices in any way reflected on what it was possible for someone in your group to do. Today, girls still encounter uh, the reality check. I'm told, uh, when I was teaching at the Kennedy School, people said that young women students today, they don't want to hear about feminism and they don't feel there's any gender bias. But people at the business school told me that although young women MBA students feel very empowered when they get out into the workforce, they meet a different reality. So the reality check sometimes comes later. For some, it may never come, and that's a wonderful thing. We have broken down many barriers. But it's still there. Now, in my generation, we were told that if you wanted to have equality, you had to be good. And so women of my generation went about leaping tall buildings in single bounds and discovered it wasn't enough to be good. You could be brilliant, and it simply wasn't enough. It's interesting. In business, there are quite a number of studies now that show that companies that have significant numbers of women in their management structures do better. They have a better return on their, on their assets and uh, less problems that come from excessive risk-taking, which appears to be uh, a problem that occurs in highly male-dominated uh, decision-making structures. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's interesting because Many men are not comfortable in all-men decision-making structures. It is sometimes it, it, we do a disfavor to men in assuming that all men are kind of, you know, the stereotype of the worst things about, about men. And in the same way, I wouldn't want to be in an all-female decision-making structure. I think that, that each, of, each of the genders, for, for a variety of reasons, some of them may be intrinsic, some of them are social, we bring certain perspectives, although there's as much division and difference within each sex is there is more division and difference within the sexes than there is between the sexes. So when I say that, I'm not saying this in a kind of a snide way at all, but simply that research shows that this is the case. And yet, women still are dramatically underrepresented on corporate boards. What is more like Nestle, for example, a company, we all probably use their products, they make a great yogurt that I buy in France. Seventy percent of the products that they sell are sold to women, but there are no women in their top 25, in their top 25 managerial positions. So, I did not want to make a career out of being a former prime minister. When people are always so diplomatic, you know. And when she retired from public life, you know. Uh, <laughs> some people, to paraphrase Shakespeare, some people choose retirement; others have retirement thrust upon them. Uh, but I discovered that having been prime minister was something that meant a lot to a lot of people. I always wanted to do honor uh, to it. I'm, I mean, I, uh, I don't have a parliamentary pension, so I had to earn a living. But you know, I resisted offers to you know, sell Vengematics on television, <laughs> even, if they, even if they do make julienne fries. But, um, so I wanted to do honor to it. But I came to understand that the visibility of women who have broken through is extremely important in changing the landscape from which people determine how the world works, and particularly how young people determine how the world works. And so I have tried very hard uh, throughout my life, uh, since politics, to remain visible uh, you know, while doing constructive work uh, in the promotion of democracy and the advancement of women. You know, it's interesting because uh, I, one of the things I do, I sit on the board of the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences. And just last week, I was at the Institute for a trustee meeting. And we had a celebration at, at lunch of the inauguration of a new chair uh, that had been endowed by, in fact, two of our members. And uh, it was a chair in plant sciences, and the professor who would be the first person to hold this chair is a woman, Joanne Corey, who is the head of the Department of Plant Sciences at SOC. And she 's an extraordinary scientist, and it was amazing to listen to the praise that her colleagues, male and female, were heaping upon her, not only her brilliance as a researcher, but her effectiveness as a leader of, of the department, her uh, kindness and support and kind of tough love uh, for other scientists. And you know I thought about all of the, the debates about you know, whether women should be in science or not in science, you know Apache uh, uh, Larry Summers. Um, But but what really struck me too was how much it meant to other women scientists who were there. Now, to be a scientist at Salk, you have to be among the best in the world. This is a gathering. You know, I mean, there is more brain power in that institute than in the average small town. I mean, these are really smart people. And yet, the women scientists there, notwithstanding that they had been accepted as faculty members of this institute, still were so moved by the fact that this was a woman, the first woman to have a, to, to take a named chair at the Salk Institute. And the Salk Institute does have a policy of, of diversity, and they admit that they're not doing as well as they should. And so even among this highly Uh, talented group of people where you would think that their capacity is clearly demonstrable by the number of papers they publish and the citations, etc., it was still so important for them to have this recognition, this person visibly leading, this visible uh, manifestation of the excellence of women in science. I think... uh, You know, I'm kind of tired of telling stories about brilliant women who got kicked in the teeth early days. Uh, There are so many of them. Uh, John Corey happily didn't get kicked in the teeth, but, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, first woman in the U.S. Supreme Court, ranked third in Stanford Law School when she graduated. In fact, William Rehnquist ranked first, who was known to be Chief Justice. And when she graduated from law school, the only job any law firm would offer her was as a legal secretary. So she had no choice. She had to go into politics and she later she created her own career and went on to a very distinguished career on the bench. And I, I can tell you a million of these stories and I'm tired of telling them. I'm tired of telling them because there are so many. There may be perhaps, writ large, statistical differences between the sexes in certain kinds of categories. Maybe if you took a gazillion men and a gazillion women and you measured them all a gazillion, you know, 0.25 gazillion men would be good at math, and 0.24 gazillion women would be, a gazillion women would be good at math. But whatever that may be, there is no scientific reasonable reason to deny a talented woman who has demonstrated capacity the opportunity to achieve. And the problem with discrimination is that it is principles in general that destroy individual lives. Girls can't do this, so you can't come. Women aren't good at this, so we will not give you the job. And that is how discrimination works. And there is absolutely no basis for it whatsoever. And those kinds of principles defy the constant stories that we tell over and over again that demonstrate that they're not true. Knowing the problem, and making role models visible, I've decided, is not enough. Positive action is needed. And it's very interesting to see changes recently. In the corporate world, we know that gender gender development improves profitability of companies. There's clear empirical evidence that shows this. And so Norway and Spain, Norway was a pioneer, but Spain has followed, have now passed laws requiring that four out of every 10 directors on corporate boards in their countries be women. You know, we're not waiting for people to say, oh, it would be nice, and we'll go on a website and see if we can find a database, and we'll ask the same woman to be on 92 boards because she's the only one whose name that we know. Four out of ten. Angela Merkel has followed in Germany. Now, she's got a voluntary compact for gender parity. But if the voluntary compact doesn't work, I hope her next step is legislation. The Netherlands is working at this as well. And I think... Uh, also interesting in Spain, I spent three years living in Spain when I was running the Club of Madrid. When Prime Minister Zapatero was elected in 2004, he didn't expect to be elected, and that's a whole other story. But he, in, in the campaign, had promised that if he were elected, 50% of his cabinet would be women. He got elected and everybody that "Oh, ha ha ha! I promised that, but doesn't happen." 50% of his cabinet are women, and you know what? Spain is doing just fine. Well, it's not doing just fine because it's being terribly hit by the global economic crisis, but it's not because of the gender of half of its cabinet ministers. He delivered. And I think it's also very important to say that enlightened male leaders are a really important part of the solution to this issue, and I want to pay tribute to Brian Mulroney, who gave me the opportunity to do things uh, that I did in the government of Canada. But we can't rely just on those who are enlightened, those who will make those changes. In my view, gender parity in government as a goal has to be seen not as a goal to be achieved, we have to see it as a right to be demanded. Gender parity is not something nice on your wish list. I think it's a right. And incidentally, I just heard from Don Nicholson O'Brien, my former co conspirator in the days when I was in justice, that in fact, Women pay, in Canada, pay over $44 billion every year in personal income tax, more than men pay. Not $44 billion, but they pay more than men. So, no taxation without representation, ladies. <laughs> Now, you're going to say to me, okay, Kim, that's all very well. But a right is only a right if you can exercise it. And how can we exercise this right? How can we guarantee? You know, Equal Voice has come up with the, the, the proposal to have proportional representation. And I appreciate the thinking behind it. And I, and I understand sort of what, that they may think that that's the only uh, vehicle available. It's a, it's a problem in a country as large as Canada, uh, where we're used to individual constituencies with responsible members of parliament but I would like to suggest how, in fact, we could do this. I think what we do is we adjust the House of Commons and we make every constituency a two-member constituency, one man, one woman. So when every constituency in Canada, a party puts forward two candidates, a man and a woman, all the voters get to vote for the male candidates, they all get to vote for the female candidates. No competition between men and women for nominations because there is a seat for a woman and a seat for a man in every riding. Now you might say, well that would mean we have two members from every seat and the House of Commons will double. We can readjust the boundaries of the constituencies, and unless you think that this is total pie in the sky, when I was elected to the British Columbia legislature in 1986, I was elected from a two-member constituency. In Vancouver, the city of Vancouver was represented by five two-member constituencies. And I was elected in Vancouver Point Great. I topped the polls, so I got elected, but the person who came second, because this was an an open election, it wasn't a seat party, was from a different political party. And I represented that constituency uh, at the same time that another woman did, as a matter of fact, uh, from a different party. It is eminently doable. There would have to be some careful readjustment of boundaries. Ridings would have to be some would be expanded. The urban ridings could be, could be done. But there's no magic number of people to re- be represented by a member of parliament. U.S. House of Congress representatives represent way more people than somebody does in, 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 in parliament. In Great Britain, it's fewer, but then Britain's a unitary state except for Scotland and Wales now. It sort of spoils my rhetoric when I talk about this. But, <laughs> but they don't have uh, regional governments. The point is, there are many things you can do. My colleague Frank Oberle used to say that that his constituent in British Columbia was the size of the Federal Republic of Germany. And for many of our our members of parliament who represent large rural ridings, you could say, well, if you're going to double them up, that would be even more difficult. But you can manage it, you can have a commission, What a, you know, Canadian national industry, royal commissions, we could create a commission to figure out what the optimal boundaries would be, what the optimal size of the House of Commons would be, and, you know, if the country that invented the Blackberry cannot figure out technological ways to make sure that every Canadian is in touch with their elected representative, we should give it up. I think it would have, in addition to sort of creating instant parity uh, in the House of Commons, it would make so many other things easier. For example, cabinet making. When you're a prime minister and you're making your cabinet, there are so many things you have to consider. You have to consider region. When I created my first cabinet, my first and only cabinet, uh, <coughs> well, I created my first cabinet. Um, (Laughter) I had to consider my opponents in the leadership campaign. I had to bring in people from, you know, the enemy camp, so to speak. I had to, you know, consider regions. And although I had reduced the size of the cabinet, I kept the same proportion of women, the absolute number went down. And that was, you know, a a source of unhappiness to me because I had these other intervening variables that also had to be respected. If half the parliament was women... For every category, you'd have men and women. It would be so much easier, you know. So John A. MacDonald once said, if you want me to build a better cabinet, you have to send me better wood. Well, you know, send the better wood to, o- to Ottawa. Make it possible for our prime minister to meet all of the goals that we need in terms of the representativeness uh, of the cabinet. So I really think that we need to stop being polite. We need to stop hoping that... Uh, you know, that that women are going to get get their representation. We need to stop, you know, if if we go at the rate we're going now, it'll be another four generations before women are 50% in Parliament. And that's assuming that there aren't terrible intervening variables that will arise because women are not there uh, saving the world from itself. And now you may say to me, ah, Kim, but you know, women are so great, and if we have so many women in politics, might they not lose those very qualities that they have that make them different and won't they just become like the men if they're in the corporate world and if they're in parliament and you know well if that happens sue me um i'm prepared to risk it so i'm throwing this challenge out to you and and to equal voice and to all of you who care the solution is within our grasp we could simply redesign the constituencies of this country and if someone, as some budding law student no doubt will, makes a charter challenge, that there's somehow gender discrimination, I'm not quite sure how they do that, but there is a provision in the charter that says that gender discrimination, that is to, or discrimination to rectify an old grievance is, is acceptable under our charter. And in the long run, it may turn out that this would protect men by guaranteeing that, because you know, as, uh, as people get to see women in politics, they may kind of be edging towards having more women than men. This way, no more arguments. And so, I want to say to you that, that we need to create a political system for all. A parliament where women are not just represented, but where finally, and once and for all, we have an equal voice. It's up to you. Thank you.
2: My name is Donna Dasko, and I'm the national chair of Equal Voice. And I am just delighted to hear Kim Campbell's comments today because I'm so inspired by this. And we have been working for all these years to get more women elected, and butting our heads against the wall, and the glass ceiling seems to be there. I'm, I'm, I'm I've got you on tape. <laughs> this is it. We are, we are going to do some of the things that you, you have suggested. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so inspired by your comments. I am here today to, uh, to thank Kim Campbell for her wonderful speech, and I'm here to present her with our Equal Voice Eve Award. The Equal Voice Eve Award recognizes individuals who have made a significant contribution to advancing women in Canadian politics. As you know, our previous recipients are Member of Parliament, the Honourable Carolyn Bennett, the Honourable Flora MacDonald, Her Worship Mayor Hazel McCallion, and former Ontario Cabinet Minister, the Honourable Frances Lankin. These women have all been trailblazers for women in politics, and they symbolize and support our cause. But let's talk about a trailblazer. A trailblazer. Nobody is more worthy of that title, and nobody is more worthy of our Eve Award than is the Right Honourable Kim Campbell. We have heard earlier about her incredible accomplishments. And I still remember the day in June 1993, while I was watching television, the day that she won her party's leadership, and the excitement that I felt and that so many women felt on that day. In her biography, Time and Chance, she described the event this way, and I quote, as we partied later that night, the joy of victory was deepened by the effect of the incredible realization that a woman was going to become prime minister. One supporter was in tears after the vote. This is for my daughter, he said. Women of all ages were jubilant. A woman was going to be prime minister, and I was that woman. Kim Campbell, you made us all so proud that day, and you continue to make us so proud as you represent Canada in your work internationally in areas of climate change, and democracy, and in non-proliferation. When I think about politics in the past decade or so, I can't help but think how much more interesting politics would have been had Kim Campbell been here with us to comment on and to be part of our passing political scene. What can I say? We miss you. We miss you. We miss your intelligence, we miss your spirit, and we miss your sense of humour. And there is a generation of young Canadian women who want to know who is Kim Campbell. So today we honour your achievements, we hear your words of wisdom, and we introduce you to a new generation of young women who will be the future Prime Ministers of Canada. So now I would like to ask Helen Burston and Leslie Byrne to come up and, and Kim Campbell to come up to the stage with me. And I have here the Eve Award. I would like to present the 2009 Eve Award to the Right Honourable Kim Campbell. Please accept this award on behalf of Equal Voice Thank for your you, contributions to you so promoting I'm Canadian lovely.
3: women. Thank you
1: I'm very grateful. Thank you. And I wanted to just to add one comment. Um, I have a website that is about to be launched, kimcampbell.com. I finally got the d- domain name back. Uh, there's, a space, there's a space holder on it right now, which you can register on to, to... I think in June it will be launched. And I hope that you will... Uh, log on from time to time. Uh, You can find out what I'm doing, and there'll be opportunities for feedback, and I'm particularly hoping to use it, uh, part of it, as a way of encouraging young women to think of leadership. So, kimcampbell.com, soon to be uh, available on a computer near you. Uh, Please log on in this wonderful world of the Internet. We don't ever have to be apart. Thank you. And thank you for this.
0: Thank you very much, and I'd like to now call upon Noella Milne to uh, thank Kim Campbell on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto
3: and Equal Voice. Noella? Thank you, Helen. And thank you very much, Kim Campbell. I know I speak for everyone here when I say it's been an honour and a pleasure to have you with us here today. Especially in this context, recognizing the achievements of women in public life and looking to encourage more of us to to follow on that trail you have blazed. I want to emphasize that even though you retired from Canadian politics, your contributions and services didn't end when you left Parliament Hill. You haven't stopped pushing the envelope. You've just expanded your sphere of influence with contributions to so many boards, advisory committees, educational groups, and international organizations. You continue to inspire us here at home and millions of girls and women around the world. For all your firsts and all the firsts that are still to come for you, Canada and especially Canadian women are so proud. Thank you, for us th- thank you for making the highest levels of leadership and the full participation of women in government a reality for us in Canada and for inspiring the next generation of women to follow in your footsteps. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Noella, and thank you again, Kim. Thank you to all of you for being with us today for our fourth annual Women in Public Life Luncheon. And on your way out, I'd like to remind you that there are uh, two tables, one set up to uh, display equal voice, and the other for the YWCA Women of Distinction uh, Awards, and uh, these remarkable organizations are showcased there. Please stop and get more information on your way out. This concludes our television programming, which has been broadcast live on Rogers TV today. And uh, thank you again for joining us. This meeting of the Canadian Club of Toronto is now adjourned.